Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Hello, everybody. We're back with yet another episode of This Month in Sales Enablement. My name is Felix Krüger. I'm your host. And as always, I am joined by the fabulous Devin McDermott, straight out of Cali, California. How are you, Devin? Straight out of Cali. I am doing great. I'm thrilled to be here as usual. This is my, my favorite part of the month. What's been happening? Tell us all about it. Well, okay. It's very exciting times out here in the desert. So I live in Palm Springs, as you know. And I actually live about a mile and a half kilometers from a mountain called Mount San Jacinto, which is like this gorgeous, epic mountain. There's a famous Palm Springs tramway that traveled up and down the side. So the other day, I'm on my Peloton riding away and it's in my partner's office. And I see him like waving his hands at me frantically. And I'm like, what's going on? And he shouts at me that there's a giant bighorn ram in our driveway. Not sure if you're familiar with the giant bighorn ram. They are giant. They have massive horns, and it was just standing there. So we run outside. I go to take a picture and I'm like, okay, this thing could totally trample me, but I had to do it. I don't know what happened. He needed to leave the mountain and, and explore the town, but he's okay. He made it back up. We made sure of it, but it was easily like the most exciting time I've had all summer. <laughs> it was wild. Amazing. Amazing. We don't have a lot of those uh, <laughs> over here in Australia, but... No. As you know, there's lots of other animals that try to kill you in Australia, as I, I was gonna say. found out gardening the other day where I uh, came across lots of spiders and snakes. Oh my God. No, no, not really. But it's more bird life Okay. around where I live. Oh my gosh. But I love pushing the stereotype that there's lots of deadly animals around here. So All I see online is giant spider photos from Australia. So as soon as you said that, my heart stopped and I was like, oh my gosh, so glad to hear it's not. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But enough of the animal kingdom. Yes. We're here to talk about sales enablement. We have an action-packed agenda, as always. I have a browser window open with all the things that we'll be talking about. And every month, the tab size seems to get smaller and smaller because we've got so many <laughs> items. So I'm staring at this wall of content here. We've got so much to cover. As always, we'll talk about news. We'll talk about research. We'll talk about the job market. We'll talk about the latest insights from the State of Sales Enablement podcast. And so on. So, yeah, why don't we just dive straight in? Let's do it. So the very first insight I want to share with you is from a conversation with Kate Lewis. And Kate Lewis runs a business called E4 Enable. And she was recently guest on the State of Sales Enablement podcast. And she was speaking about coaching culture. So let's take a listen of what she had to say. Culture is driven by coaching, by understanding your people, by making your people feel valued, by developing your people, and that having much, much more substance to it than we've got a slide instead of stairs in our office. All right. Coaching culture as a reflection of a business culture. Absolutely love that. And I think that's kind of a pet peeve for me in the past before I started running my own businesses. Mm -hmm. Whenever I was an employee, I so often felt a discrepancy between, as they say, what's written on the wall versus what you see in the hole. Yes. Lots of catchy slogans always, lots of culture decks. But then suddenly when you leave those sort of sessions and you actually experience the real world environment, you then suddenly notice that there's a big discrepancy between the way people behave and what you actually claim to be the culture. What's been your experience on that front? 
I think that is so spot on. Like you can speak about our company culture and all the things we do, but it generally is the slide in the office or the pizza party, or here's a t-shirt, but we're not going to give you more money, or we know you're doing two jobs. And so here's a kudos on our kudos board, which is all really nice, but it's not actually solving the problem. And actually in that interview, you talk about intrinsic motivation. I wish it was something that we talked about more often of like what motivates and inspires people. What are the true things, you know, autonomy, mastery, purpose, the things that make you want to stay at a company, work harder. And I think that's often overlooked for more of like the vanity things. That's right. You get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think there's typically like two ends of the spectrum. One is where the culture is not as great as you want it to be. And then those kind of things are being put in place to kind of masquerade it and try with the assumption that those things will actually make a difference to the culture, even though they don't. Right. And then there's some businesses that actually don't talk much about culture, but they just have a culture. Yeah. It's just accepted behaviors. It's mainly driven through the managers behaving in a certain way. Yeah. Really showing, like leading the charge when it comes to the way people interact and the way things are being driven. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we do the big book review as part of this show as well. Yes. Which was one of the aspects of a scalable idea and specifically from a business point of view, the cultural aspect. But yeah, I think those are two ends of the spectrum that I often see. So I find it really interesting and I would definitely recommend anybody who listens and might experience that to look out for those kind of signals that might just be masquerading versus actual action being taken and definitely more fond of the substance approach of actually just doing the things that really make a difference rather than just talking about it. Yeah. That's a conversation for another day, I suppose. <laughs> Let us take a listen now to the next insight from a recent podcast episode. And I had Tony Hughes on the podcast. He's a co-author of a book called Tech Powered Sales. Really great book for anybody interested in checking that out. It's all about technology in the sales context. And he had some predictions around the sales tech space. Let's take a listen. About a year ago, a tech startup would be spending about $1,000 US per month per sales employee. One of the things we predict in tech powered sales is that that will go up to as high as $5,000 per month per rep. When you look at equipping people with the tech, so there'll be fewer sellers, they'll be better enabled with technology, and there'll definitely be a trend to more inside selling and less field selling. All right. So yeah, really interesting prediction that he makes here. So they make the prediction that the spend per sales rep on average will increase from 1,000 US dollars to 5,000 US dollars. Yeah. Devin, you, you've invested a lot of in technology. Do you see the sales tech space currently being on a trajectory or do you think there's still a challenge of actually utilizing what's already there and maximizing that impact? I think it's a little column A, a little of column B. And I think as we start to see more interesting sales enablement tech, it's going to shift the way we approach it. But what it really comes down to is folks having a more refined tech strategy, right? So like we have all this technology and I've been in roles where I had call recording, a content management system, but I didn't have a way for those tools to communicate. I wasn't thinking early on in my enablement career, how did this impact my reps? I was thinking about ease of use for my team and ease of getting data back to the organization. But I think it's really about how do we create that laser-focused strategy that's thinking about what are our customers receiving an experience? What are our teams experiencing? And are we creating those efficiencies through technology? So 
Well, I think the tech space will continue to evolve. I think as enablers, we are refining how we think about tech and how we think about the tech ecosystem within our business and where in early days, certain tech was nice to have. Now it's essential. And I think we're going to keep seeing that, especially as our sales cycles change, as our customers change, and as the world changes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You mentioned something really interesting here about what needs to be true for that actually to happen. And I fully agree that the skills of the people managing technology and orchestrating technology has to improve for that sort of growth to happen. It doesn't happen by itself. Right. You don't make your sales team more effective or efficient by just throwing tech tools at them. So you need to become really good, or we as enablers need to become really good at actually orchestrating the technology, doing the groundwork to identify where technology can add value, how you can make it effective and make new things happen during the sales process. How can you make it efficient to streamline certain processes and so on? So I think enablers doing the groundwork will certainly be crucial for that growth to happen. Yeah. It's all about efficiency and time saving. We talked last month about the transparent sales leader and time is a commodity. And so like we need to make sure we are creating efficiencies through the tech strategy. And more importantly, as the landscape changes that we're refining our strategy and we're checking in to say, are we using the right tech? Is it as thoughtful as it can be? And that, again, is like that's what changes the game. So a lot of the weight is on enablement, but I'm OK with that. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All right, next up, we got a couple of news items. And first up, we had a article from Mind Tickle. Yeah. It was talking about how managers can use conversational intelligence for sales. Also, as a side note, we've got Alex Sello from Mind Tickle coming up on the State of Sales Enablement podcast. So oh. for anybody who's keen to hear from those guys, worth looking out for that episode. But Devin, tell me, what's this article all about? Yeah, so we're, we're going to do a couple of articles today. And I, I like to think of these as like the back to basics articles. But this one, it's a little bit of a tech update and mostly a best practices article focused on conversational intelligence or call recording. And so included in the article, and let me just preface, like with anything we're covering, definitely read it. It's worth taking the time. But there are some tips on how to make the most of technology and how to maximize, as we just talked about, our rep time and our manager time. So using tech to fuel our strategy versus tech as a crutch. There's also within this article, I see you have it up here, like a marketing collateral type of guide on finding the right conversational intelligence solution. I always love those. But again, I think in the tech space, tools like MindTickle, Call AI, that's what their conversational intelligence is, and Gong are table stakes for so many companies, which is awesome. And I don't know if you've experienced this, Felix, but I remember the first time I procured Gong it was a battle to get my organization on board. They like didn't agree with it. It's this is for call centers. This isn't for us. And now everybody's on board, which is really exciting because there is so much value that can be derived. So for folks that are new to conversational intelligence, I think it's really the powerhouse of the tech stack. I don't know if I'm making too much of a sweeping statement there, but it's pretty important. So the article is going to bring in customer insights, it's going to help us to understand how we can drive efficiencies, improve execution and coaching, and really improve execution across our entire business. So they look at some of the ways we can leverage call recording or conversational intelligence to leverage customer insights, bring them into the business. Think about how we're using words in the sales cycle and the impact, the words that we're saying and when we're saying them 
can impact the way we think about our process and execution. But most importantly, and I think my favorite part of the article is where they dig into the manager and team member benefits of using something like conversational intelligence and how it can really impact the business. So included are tips for managers and enablers, really, on how to actually assess those conversations, how to decode some of the selling experiences and buying experiences to, again, maybe inform our strategy or to leverage it as a coaching opportunity. But for my enablers on the line who are procuring technology right now, as I am, this article is actually quite helpful to validate the investment for this type of technology. So there are some really cool stats in here around how marketing can be empowered by conversational intelligence, again, giving a direct line into the customer space and how we can increase team efficiency. We talked about time. So making sure our teams are not taking notes, they're not scrambling to stay on top of things. They're given a verbatim transcript. They can communicate effectively with customers. And again, it really leans into the power of coaching that is possible with this type of technology. And again, from an enablement view, it helps us to see like, are the enablement initiatives that we're launching working? Are people adopting the processes, the messaging, the objections that we're sharing with them via any enablement initiative that we're launching? The other thing that I think is really important that the article calls out is how we can use conversational intelligence to support reduced ramp time and make sure that our customer-facing teams are listening to full sales cycles, full customer journeys in their first week on the job. So when we talk about efficiencies, when we talk about scale, call recording is really a secret weapon to do that. So again, if you're new to the world of conversational intelligence or if you're just looking for some tips on how you can level up, how you're using your call recording, definitely check out this article. As I mentioned, there's also some great proof points for a business case if you are looking to procure technology like this. Yeah, awesome. I think there's a lot of gold in here in terms of how you maximize the ROI of a conversational intelligence tool. No matter which tool you use, I think there is still a lot of work to be done to actually maximize the power of those kind of recording tools. Yeah. I think on the simplest level in my work with clients, what I've seen is people just introducing those sort of recording tools like as a surveillance mechanism. Right, <laughs> big brother. <laughs> Make reps feel like they're being watched. I think that's a toxic way to use it. I think it should be positioned in a positive way and then also be utilized in improving things for everybody involved, as you said, through coaching, by doing analysis around what works, what doesn't, what language works, what doesn't, and so on. But I think also for any business, from my experience, introducing those sort of tools, the ability to run the analysis effectively and be structured around the analysis is really key to actually extract that value because big time. if you only rely on vendor insights, like the sort of insights that they gather on a broader level, yep. on a higher level, I think you are diluting the impact that you're able to generate. So it's really important to upscale on that front from my experience working with clients. Couldn't agree more. All right. By the way, I had Sonia ask for the book title earlier. So the, the book title is Tech Powered Sales. Also on that note, please, everybody, make sure if you want to take advantage of the resources that we mentioned in this month in Sales Enablement, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter on LinkedIn with the same name. Just look for this month in Sales Enablement. The newsletter essentially consists of a collection of all the links that we mentioned in here. So this is a resource that close to a thousand subscribers already take advantage of. So it would be great to have you on board and also have you join. Next up, we have a article about asynchronous learning. The headline reads, asynchronous learning could be a boon for employers and employees. Devin, what is that all about? 
It sure can. So this article, again, as we talked about, like table stakes for enablement may seem like common knowledge to any enabler. And personally, I've been working with blended learning formats as long as I can remember. That said, it is not commonplace in every company to employ an asynchronous learning strategy, especially, and again, some of what I'm seeing is, you know, within startups and smaller companies that maybe didn't start with an L&D or an enablement function out of the gate. And companies where the culture still relies very heavily on in-office or on the in-person experience via a live session or a Zoom experience, they might not have the strategy or the tech in place or tech strategy to support the deployment and maintenance of e-learning experience. And for some folks, again, folks that have never done anything with asynchronous learning, this strategy of incorporating it in can be uncomfortable. And as we talked about, without the right mechanisms, could be quite challenging as well. And as enablers, we talk a lot about how do we meet learners where they are? How do we focus on learning by doing? You know, time is our precious resource. But as I mentioned, a lot of organizations are still stuck in the past when it comes down to what great sustained learning looks like. So the article says, I'm going to just pull a quote from here. Traditionally, learning and development has focused on synchronous learning, which is everyone in the same place at the same time learning together while asynchronous learning is about making training and training materials available on demand where they can be consumed in a self-paced manner. And so when I think about this, it's not just about asynchronous versus synchronous learning. It's about building a strategy that supports learners how they want to learn, where they want to learn, and when they consume information, and creating that blended learning approach with moments in your enablement strategy to support the things that we know really move the needle, like role-playing, learning by doing, allows us to make those in-person or I guess like the live experiences more valuable and targeted versus the only forum to share all of the information that our reps need. And what I really loved about the article, especially for folks that are just getting into this blended learning and exploring asynchronous learning, is the focus on the art and the science. So how do I find the right balance between my synchronous and asynchronous learning within the strategy? So they talk about the 70-20-10 approach to maximize learning effectiveness. And for folks who aren't familiar with this, it's 70% of knowledge gained from on the job, 20% from interactions with peers or colleagues and 10% through this like traditional learning experience, which realizes that most learning happens informally within our organization and that we need to make sure we're building in time for our teams to learn informally and experientially via coaching, mentoring, and peer learning and so on. But I think the important thing to point out when you're thinking about bringing in this strategy is that there isn't a formula or a recipe that's one size fits all when it comes to your approach and your method. And I think we all know communication methods are changing. Our learners are changing. Our attention spans are changing. I know personally these days, I maybe have enough brain space to sit through an Instagram reel or a very short TikTok, but that's about it. <laughs> but think about it, Felix. Like We have generations coming up who've had bite-sized entertainment and information available to them for most of their lives. Whenever they want it, wherever they want it, they've never had to wait to watch an episode of a TV show or to watch a sequel to a movie. Or more importantly, they've never had to sit in front of the TV at a specific period of time to watch a show or they would miss the show. And I'm thinking myself on must-see TV on Thursday nights. But these are the folks that we're trying to make sit in a one-hour or two-hour training or a full-day boot camp on our schedule. And we're expecting to see results. And so I think it's really important to consider who you are enabling and who you are building the strategy for and ensuring that coaching, training, and supporting our developing employees 
is in place in a way where they can receive it to help increase motivation, reduce turnover. So where I lean in with this is like, this article's great. It's incredibly foundational, but helps to set the stage for bringing in an asynchronous or blended learning strategy into your organization. Yeah, that's awesome. And we had Sonia contributing. She said, building e-learning path is time-consuming in the beginning, yes. but will free up your time in the long run. Absolutely agree. I think it is worth the effort. And of course, it's easier to just wing it and just run those sessions. But yeah, from my perspective, the biggest change that I've witnessed over the last couple of years is just the tendency of people trying to make whatever content they consume and whatever formats they consume fit their mindset. Exactly. The mindset is given. Yeah. Like you don't want to have to bend yourself backwards to put yourself in a zone to do something. Yeah. Like you have the mindset that you have in any given point in time and you consume content accordingly. Yeah. I think that definitely also applies to me, but with everybody having to juggle private life and professional life, working from home, I think those kind of consumption behaviors become much more common. Yeah. Asynchronous learning becomes so much more important, especially if you want to reinforce learnings and want to give people who might just be sitting waiting for a bus, just revisit something that has been mentioned in training, you know, and they can do that anytime. I think that's a wonderful opportunity. And as Sonia said, it takes a bit of time to develop those sort of materials in the beginning, but then you can pretty much scale it indefinitely. So I think especially for businesses that are expanding rapidly and only have limited self-enablement resources to run those sort of training sessions, this is a big opportunity at the fingertips. Yeah, I love it. Now, talking about scale brings us to our uh, book review. And we have one book that we'll be looking at this week, which is the Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale by John A. List. John List is a author who has become quite popular through his Freakonomics books. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard about them. Have you come across those, Devin? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's an economist. I think he's employed by the University of Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. But he has also been the chief economist for Uber and the U.S. government. So <laughs> he keeps busy. No big deal. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So he's quite cutting edge in the things that he does. And he specializes in behavioral economics. And this book is essentially, as the name says, it talks about how to make things scale, what stops certain things from scaling. And I think this book could also be called a masterclass in how to make dry subject matter interesting <laughs> through storytelling, because I like it. This guy has stories for days and it's pretty amazing how he can illustrate pretty dry subject matter and pretty technical subject matter by actually providing case studies from his quite exciting life. So yeah, this guy is involved in all kinds of different ventures. And as I said, he was chief economist for Uber. Then he switched over to Lyft, basically their main competitor. He has all kinds of case studies around those sort of gigs, but he's also been involved in educational programs, trying to make them scale and so on. So he's got lots of those. There's two sections in this book. Number one is the pitfalls to avoid in determining whether an idea will scale. And those are kind of the things that you need to look out for to avoid failure in an attempt to scale. Some of the things that he points out there are dupes and false positives. So for example, if you do your initial research, and have some sort of focus group that you run or like me. So anybody who's following me knows that I'm creating an online course at the moment. We have created a beta testing panel with reviewers providing feedback. So what he talks about here is having dupes or false positives. So essentially 
having a confirmation bias or a herd mentality when you receive feedback and the feedback not being representative of what will happen if you actually scale the product or the idea that you're trying to publish. The other one he talks about is the actually knowing your audience really well. So again, making sure that the sample size is really representative of what you will encounter once you scale, especially if you work with small groups. Initially, there's a really big risk of having a sample of the population that is representative. You might have people with a certain socioeconomic background or a certain opinion due to the location or political influences or whatever it might be. And they might react in a certain way, which is not representative if you scale your idea, for example, across the whole United States of America or across the whole world even. The other thing he also points out and things to look out for in avoiding failure and making a idea scalable is to see if the circumstances that you encounter is actually representative of the initial test compared to the situation or the circumstances needed to scale. And he brings a example of Jamie Oliver. Everybody knows the chef from the UK, and he famously launched and failed with a restaurant chain. There was actually a restaurant here in Sydney as well, really popular in the very beginning when they first launched, but then went downhill really quickly. And what they found was that it wasn't the chef that was the secret to success, literally. It wasn't Jamie Oliver's name or whatever, but it was actually the key employees and the circumstances specific to the marketplaces they were operating in, meaning specifically the people doing quality control in the kitchen and also the people responsible for sourcing ingredients. And the quality of the ingredients suffered and also the quality of the output of the kitchen suffered, which ultimately led to the demise of the restaurant chain because obviously Jamie Oliver cannot be present in every single case. So there was another example of why that venture failed. Spillover effect is another one to look out for. It's essentially looking out for the side effects of certain things that you do and how that might affect other areas of the system that you're trying to build. Again, really interesting from a sales perspective as well, because let's take, for example, the example of CRM entry. You might improve your reporting drastically, you might get gain all sort of insights to the data that you gather, but then a spillover effect might be that your reps spend half of the day entering data into the CRM and not selling, <laughs> right? That's a negative spillover <laughs> effect that might affect your scale. Cost trap is another one. So the cost trap is a limiting factor that talks about essentially having costs that don't scale with the idea. One interesting example that they mentioned in the book was the acquisition cost of high-quality talent in a job market with limited talent pool. For example, from a sales perspective, the way you could look at it is if your sales team required a very specialist and niche expertise for the sellers to be effective, and those skills and expertises cannot be taught as part of your sales enablement program for whatever reason, mm -hmm. then suddenly you will run into a situation where because you exhaust the talent pool in this specific area of your market, the costs of any new hire become so much more expensive because those people are simply not available anymore in the job market, right? So in this case, interesting, your idea would not be scalable because the costs become too expensive and so on. So I think lots of interesting ideas to consider from a sales enablement point of view, from a limiting factor point of view. You also mentioned a few factors that actually incentivize scale or contribute to scale. And the number one item that he mentions in the book 
which I also think is really highly relevant to sales enablement is the providing incentives that scale, mm -hmm. which obviously taps into the notion of sales incentives and really making sure that you have incentives that no matter how big the company, no matter how big the sales team are still motivating. Yeah. You might have different incentive structures in the very beginning when the company is quite small and you emphasize certain parts of the sales process. So for example, there might be a new business acquisition components that is really important when you first mm -hmm. launch because you want to showcase growth to get new investment and so on. But then later on, you might want to emphasize retention and renewals, right? And you want to incentivize based on that. So that's a real crucial factor to consider. The other one that I also really found interesting from a sales enablement point of view was the consideration of margins and that a lot of cost-benefit analyses are being done on a average level. So you basically look at the entire data pool and look at averages to consider whether a certain approach makes sense or not. Mm -hmm. But what is often not done is looking at the incremental margins. So for example, let's take the example of sales tech again. You might see that on average, sales tech has contributed to reducing your sales cycle by X amount, right? Throughout the entire sales cycle. Mm -hmm. And you say, okay, X amount of money that we spend has contributed to that benefit. And so the bottom line might be that you decide, okay, based on that, we invest further in sales tech. But the consideration should always be what the next increment of benefit is that you're able to achieve. So by spending another dollar, do you get the same benefit that you previously had, right? So yeah. that's a nuance that is often neglected when analyzing data that he points out that you need to consider the marginal incremental benefit of any further investment being done. So I think from a sales enablement point of view, especially interesting when you look at certain measures being put in place to support certain areas of the sales cycle. Yeah. Don't only look at the benefit to the entire sales cycle, look at the benefit to the specific sales stages and the specific stages of the buyer journey. That was one of the key learnings for me. And just a couple of quick ones. I realized that we spent quite a lot of time on this book, but... No, I, I love this. <laughs> I'm like on Audible buying it right now. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. The last two points is that quitting is for winners. So you should be able to identify when it makes sense to cut your losses. So sticking with an initiative just because you have already spent a lot of time and put a lot of effort in it is not the right approach, right? Like you need to ignore what has happened in the past and always ask yourself, if I had to make the same decision today, pursuing this avenue, would I make it again, right? If the answer is no, you need to exit straight away. If the answer is yes, you can keep on going. So I think a lot of people fall into the trap of, especially from a political point of view, internally in a company, oh, yeah. you want to be seen as doing things that really have an impact. And you want to be seen as doing things that are the right decision, right? And again, it comes down to what we talked about earlier in terms of the company culture and whether that sort of behavior is encouraged or not. If failure is a possibility, I think it's more likely that people actually make the right call and exit certain initiatives. If it isn't, there's a lot of times people sticking with initiatives just because they want to be right yep. and want to make it work somehow. So that's another one. And then lastly, scaling culture, really interesting. And he specifically talks about the example of Uber in that case, and that's a very prominent example. And I absolutely loved that part of the book just because he gave an inside view of what actually happened at Uber, or they had all those problems with the toxic culture. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what he put the failure of Uber's culture down to was that 
this sort of aggressive culture that they had in place was really suitable for gaining initial traction, right? Yeah. If you need to use your elbows as a company to gain traction in the marketplace, you need to have a very aggressive culture internally as well to actually cross that chasm and really gain that traction that you need to become a brand that's out there that is really defining a category. But once they actually crossed that bridge, the aggressive culture was actually self-limiting. Yeah. Once you become larger, it's actually more helpful to be more collaborative, to be more inclusive, because the amount of people that are willing to cope with that sort of culture, yeah, that pool of people is really shrinking. And you end up with a toxic culture where there's really aggressive people that always try to be the loudest and fastest talking and always try to be right, versus the more introverted people that might not be able to combat those sort of aggressive people. I think that was a really interesting point of view as well. That is always also from a sales perspective, if you are an enabler in a fast growing company, it is worthwhile considering what sort of culture you are looking to build in collaboration with the sales leadership team. If the culture that you have in place right now will be the same or can be the same that you will have in one year's time once you hired 50 more sales reps. So overall, I thought it was a brilliant book. Some of the things that are mentioned I think are sort of intuitive knowledge from people that have been involved in startups and in business in general. But again, he illustrates them really nicely. He combines storytelling with a lot of really technical descriptions. And I think it is not a self-specific book, but something that can help any sales enabler expand their thinking and also be more systematic about scaling their approach. So I highly recommend it. Straight up five stars from me. Oh, I'm ready. I literally have it queued up to purchase. So thank you. Do it. You won't regret (laughs) it. And I should also mention, I listened to the audio book version. I'm not sure. I haven't seen the Kindle or the physical version, but the audio book version was brilliant. So I can definitely recommend that one. Love it. I like when people read to me. So I'm a big fan of Audible. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. I would be struggling to have my wife read that sort of material to me, I think. So I'm glad there's Audible out there. Now, that was it for book reviews. We've got a couple of interesting ones coming up next month. What was the one that you uh, will present next month again? The one that we're going to talk about next month, if anybody wants to read along, is called Pitch Perfect, How to Say It Right the First Time, Every Time. It's really, really interesting. So again, maybe we all want to read along. I don't know, but I will be here with my update. Yeah, awesome. I'm reading a book called Better Change. And if you haven't come across it, don't worry. It's actually a book from the, I think it was published in 1995, and there's only physical used versions out there. But it was recommended to me by a couple of people, and it was commonly described as the best change management book that these people have come across, and they're all experienced people. So I've got a used copy on my bedside table working through it at the moment, and the one is coming up next month for anybody who's interested. Love it. But enough from the reviews for now. We have a couple of events that are coming up that we want to point out to you. So we won't spend too much time on those. I just want to point them out quickly so anybody who's interested can check them out in more detail. First one up is the SES Experience 2022 that is coming up on the 28th of September in Atlanta. Lots of great speakers. SES Experience is always worthwhile. So I can definitely recommend it based on past events. And I'm sure being in Atlanta will also be fun. It's hosted at the Western Buckhead. I'm not sure what the sort of venue is, but anybody familiar with Atlanta might know it. The next 
event that is also coming up is the Sales Enablement Soiree Americas 2022, hosted by Sales Enablement Pro. Again, September 22, going almost head to head with the SES experience. It's that time of the year, I guess. Also worth checking out. The other one that I also came across, which is quite interesting for anybody based in the UK, is the Sales Innovation Expo. That's actually a free one. There's a big expo component, as the name says, but they also have speakers. So considering it's free, it is probably worthwhile getting involved early. I'm not sure if tickets will run out at some stage, but it's going to take place on the 22nd to 23rd of November in London. For anybody who's based in the UK or is traveling to the UK during that time. And then we also have the Sales Enablement Summit. I think we pointed that one out last time, but why not mention it again? September 7th to 8th in San Francisco, hosted by the Sales Enablement Collective. And if I remember correctly, they host the CRO Summit at the same time in the same venue. So I'm not quite sure how that works with tickets, but... I guess one is more specialized on sales enablers, the other one more on sales leadership. Worthwhile checking out if you are based in the San Francisco Bay Area or in California in general. Lineup looks really interesting. So yeah, are you going, Devin? Are you going to any of those? I'm considering it. I love the virtual events or the virtual components, but I may jump into a few of the San Francisco events in September. Oh, uh, you'll be there in person. I can do a person on the street interview if I go. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you could be walking and doing this show, I'm sure. <laughs> awesome. I haven't made it to the US recently, but for anybody based over there, I'm really keen to meet everybody in person one time. So yeah. maybe next year. But yeah, those events certainly look interesting. Let's see what we have next up. Oh, jobs. Love it. Always a hot topic, especially at the moment. <laughs> Before we touch on some of the resources, just a couple of insights that I've come across recently. So one of my clients has been hiring recently for a senior sales enablement role. He shared a really interesting insight, and I'm by no means sure if that's representative of the whole job market, but mm -hmm. he obviously had a decent exposure because he had quite a lot of applicants. So the experience that he had was that there was a lot of talent out there at the moment looking for jobs with a training background. Hmm. I'm not sure if that's a reflection of the scope of enablement skills that companies are currently be looking for, but it seems like there's a, a decent supply of training talent out there, in which case the assumption would be that companies are looking for skills beyond training, but I can't say that for sure. The other insight as well was that it was actually a recruiter that I spoke to who mentioned that he often makes the experience that sales enablers are not very good at selling themselves. <laughs> they're good at teaching selling, but they're not very good at selling themselves. And what that leads to is that sales enablers are essentially selling themselves on the value. Huh. And I think that is probably, again, when we talk about storytelling, as I mentioned earlier in the context of the voltage effect. That's probably something that we can all upskill in is telling better stories, mm -hmm. not only like in general, but also about just the work that we're doing in order to sell ourselves in the job market. I think there's a big opportunity there going into interviews, assuming common questions that we might come across, actually thinking about the stories that we can tell in those contexts in advance. So I think yeah. there was an interesting insight that I had as well. The other two resources that I want to share with you is... The job board by Stephanie Zorabian, 
Mm-hmm. Always a good one. So we've referenced it before. It seems like Amazon Web Services is hiring <laughs> like crazy. They're hiring for five enablement roles, as you would expect from the biggest company in the world or the most well-resourced company in the world or the most valuable company in the world, I think. Yeah. Lots of remote jobs there, lots of hybrid jobs, lots of on-site jobs. So for anybody looking for work at the moment, this is a brilliant resource. I would recommend anybody uh, digging into those. This is a great resource that Stephanie publishes on a weekly basis. So uh, make sure to follow her if you are not doing that already. I've also seen that more and more people are actually posting then things in the comments. So yes, this is really a community that's building around those job posts. So always highly recommended digging into those. The other resource that's also been coming up is from Stephanie White, also really engaged and really active in the enablement space. She showcases enablement talent. So essentially, if you take the job part of the job market on the one hand, which Stephanie Sorabian covers, Stephanie White covers the talent part, showcasing specific talent. So if you are a hiring manager, that might be a resource to check out to get a insight into uh, the sort of talent that's out there, the sort of talent that's looking for jobs. So again, a great service that Stephanie White offers there to the community. Absolutely love it. And I hope there will be more along those lines out there, which reminds me, I have actually also posted something along the lines of how you can help job seekers at the moment in your network. So just recapping those points briefly, there's sort of seven things you can do really easily that I would recommend. Number one is to introduce any enablers to the best recruiter that you know. I think that's a quick win because uh, recruiters obviously offer the sort of service for free for job seekers. I think those sort of introductions can work really well and uh, help enablers gaining more traction in the job market. Write a LinkedIn recommendation, endorse their skills, share their profile with your most valued connections. I've had a few instances in the past month or so where a context of mine set up a quick group chat, just sharing the profile of a certain person that they know that they can definitely recommend to anybody hiring and basically endorsing a person that way. That's a really great way to support people on that front. Forward them enablement jobs that pop up in your feed. So we mentioned Stephanie's job posts earlier, but also anything else that might be coming up. Engage with the posts, also gives them visibility, especially easily done and airtime easily offered if those people have those open for work badges on their profile as well, or to simply give them a shout out if you just want to do a post, endorse somebody for their skills because you work with them and just give them visibility to the network. These are all things that you can easily do. It only takes a couple of minutes each. So if you have somebody that you work with and you ask yourself, why does that person not have a job right now? That's something that you can easily do. And I hope what we experience with the South Neighborhood community, with everybody sticking together, everybody supporting each other, that's definitely something that I hope everybody do as well. Now, that brings us to the next point in the agenda, which I really just briefly <laughs> want to touch on. I don't want to spend too much time on that. Everybody might have heard about the crying CEO. There was a topic on LinkedIn last week. A hot topic. Yeah, yeah. So for everybody who <laughs> didn't witness what happened, so there was a guy who runs a B2B, I think sort of a lead gen agency. They're one of those LinkedIn lead gen agencies that always slide into your inbox 
<laughs> asking you if you want to hire them. Yeah. But he runs a team of 20 or he ran a team of 20 and he let four employees go because he was running into cash flow issues with his business. And then he posted about it, posted a selfie of him crying and essentially seemed to make the whole thing about himself. Look, there's so much nuance to this topic that I think we don't have the time for today. But I think he definitely appeared like a bit of a, I don't want to say, I have to beat this out, but <laughs> he didn't seem like the most likable guy. And a lot of people called him out for that. Like, why do you make it about yourself and so on? And which then again, later on was revealed, like some people that he let go actually posted and actually said that he's a really nice guy and that he's really genuine and really cares about his employees, which added another angle to it. But for me, the bottom line was that the backlash was really brutal. Yeah. And a lot of people really piled on and were really brutal as people were posting parodies, like pretending to cry and so on. So yeah. Look, I think we easily forget when we don't know people online that there's really people on the other side of the screen and there's a lot of nuance to situations that you might not uh, grasp when you see a post like that. Yeah. Which I really appreciate again about the sales and aiming community because you kind of feel like you come across people more often than once in this community and people are supportive of each other. So I, I really hope that this is a cautionary tale of filtering what you post, first of all. <laughs> yeah. But also probably being more generous with your kindness and always giving people the benefit of the doubt and not digging into people so much. What's your whole take on the situation? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I feel like I have two points of view, which I think you kind of expressed as well. And more than anything, I think the situation is about understanding when it's time to make something about yourself as the CEO or, you know, in other organizations, the executive leadership team or the HR leader who are often responsible for making the decisions, right? And, and they have to deliver the message about a reduction in force or layoff, meaning, yes, I'm sure he was hurt. And I'm sure the other leaders that are conducting layoffs feel hurt and upset and angry. It sucks. But it's also important to know that this isn't a situation that's about them. It's about the people who are being affected and impacted. So like we talked about TikTok culture and the world we live in. I know people, and I think we might all know people who post videos of themselves on Instagram crying and they're like, I'm having a really hard day and they're looking to curate some support or attention, but they're not thinking about what's on the other side. It's about like, I need this attention for me. I'm feeling, I'm emoting. And it, it may be genuine. It may truly be how they're feeling. But I think it's really important when you're in that position as an executive leader, as a CEO, to keep that in mind and to know when it's time to like lean into those feelings and emotions and, and when and where to express them and when it's time to focus on the feelings and emotions of the people that are being impacted. But again, like this may be where we're headed as folks who are part of, and I don't know what like the right terminology is. I feel like I sound like I'm hundred years old, but like the TikTok generation of like, this is how you share feelings and emotions. And we're going to see leaders that are doing more of this. So it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. It comes down to emotional intelligence. Yeah. I think if you're really emotionally struggling, you should pick up the phone, but not to take a selfie, but to call somebody in your real life right. that cares about you, that you can share those feelings with. Yeah. That's the bottom line to me. I just wanted to share that with the notion that I'm glad that there's more kindness in the sales enablement space and yes. something that I want everybody to consider that Got to support each other and be nice to each other. Yeah. It's a cold, hard word out there. Let's be nice to each other. All right. So now on a happier note, just a quick post I want to share. So Georgia Watson, also on this call, 
she actually shared a post about sales enablers to follow and don't want to toot my own horn here, but I was involved. Oh, <laughs> I was also listed, but you were also listed in the comments. So <laughs> I'm not alone here. So, <laughs> well, you are an influencer, Felix. I know we, we've already determined this, though. It's only right that you're mentioned there. I love it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The teeth whitening kit is on its way. Don't worry. <laughs> um, the reason why I want to share that is because there's a whole bunch of people that post really valuable content on a regular basis. So anybody who wants to be more connected in the sales enablement space and have more of that social learning experience and learn from people in the trenches who practice sales enablement every day and who produce a lot of content, definitely make sure you check those guys out. I follow most of those people, so I can definitely vouch for the quality of content out there. One person I can definitely vouch for because I'm creating an online course with him at the moment is Mike Kunkel. And Mike has recently worked with me on releasing a, also in the context of the course they were creating, on creating a newsletter. And the newsletter that we have created is called Building Blocks Close-Up. And it's essentially a close-up of the building blocks of sales enablement. So Building Blocks of Sales Enablement, for those of you who are not familiar, that's his book. He basically breaks down the sales enablement discipline from a holistic point of view, looks at all the different elements, all the moving parts of sales enablement and building blocks close up. Essentially, each week provides a snapshot of each of those building blocks. And it seems like it resonates because we already have 19,500 subscribers. So lots of great feedback there. And so anybody who's interested in learning more about the building blocks of sales enablement, definitely make sure to subscribe and also, anybody who is interested in the course, we're probably going to launch that towards the end of September at the current timeline. As I said, we are constantly re-evaluating the scope based on the beta testing panel feedback. So if there's scope creep, we might delay that, but that's also coming up for anybody who's interested in digging into that. Georgia has just shared the link again in the chat. So for anybody keen, please make sure to check that out. I will also, again, share that link in the this month in sales enablement newsletter. So again, anybody keen to subscribe and gain access to those resources, please make sure to do so. Looking at the agenda, we're almost out of time, but there's one more item that we have here before we share closing thoughts, which is the SE Pro 2022 report. What's going on? What's that all about? Yeah, there is so much included here. So I could probably spend the next 30 minutes talking about it. I will not. So please click on that link when Felix sends the newsletter. But very quickly, this is the eighth edition of the State of Sales Enablement Report. I think it included like 400 sales, marketing, enablement, and folks across the globe to really get an understanding of top enablement priorities and recommendations to drive consistent revenue and prove enablement's value in the organization. As we talked about earlier, I think these reports are really helpful as you're thinking about scaling an enablement organization, staffing up, building tech, prioritizing. It kind of helps to get a gut check of where are the trends in the industry? Where should I be thinking about shifting my approach? And am I thinking about things in the most relevant and recent way possible? So in the interest of time, I'll only flag just a few of the items that I found really interesting, but again, definitely worth reading. As somebody who's, I just started a new role heading up enablement at a startup. So I'm trying to bring disparate enablement groups together. I'm at the very bottom of a mountain that I need to summit. And so I really need to lean into some of these insights. So the first one is all about the charter. So I think the charter is the holy grail of strategic planning in general, and it's the North Star of any enablement program. And the report shows that the formal charter is essential to maximizing results. 
in so much that practitioners have realized the value of structuring their approach to enablement through a formal charter that covers strategy, scope, and success metrics. The quote is, 32% of survey respondents have a formal sound enablement charter, a 14% increase year over year, which is really exciting. So again, pulling us away from those random acts of enablement, creating consistency, building groundswell, building your stakeholders. Really good to see that there. Next up, the survey looked at having a dedicated function for enablement versus people doing enablement tasks or farming out enablement to various places. Felix, you and I talk a lot about this, but staffing up your team the right way is essential. And again, I say the right way based on your business, based on your maturity, based on your path to scale. And so like many of the listings we saw on Stephanie's job boards, so many companies are staffing up enablement. And the report shows just that, that over the last year, sales enablement teams have grown in size as the number of teams with over six members has increased by 63% year over year to nearly 50%. And they also state that increasing the size of a sales enablement team helps to drive business results as teams with six or more members report 14 percentage point higher quota attainment compared to teams with two to five members. I loved this, but then I wanted to know more. How do these metrics correlate to organization size, sales team structure? I want to know everything. I love the data point, but I need a little bit more there. Finally, we've been talking a lot about ROI. So the last piece, actually, there's two more very quick. Folks that want to grow their function but are struggling with buy-in need to be able to prove the potential and ROI of the function. So in order to validate that headcount, we need to make sure it's worth it, right, essentially. And then finally, they talk quite a bit about enablement tech and building the right enablement tech strategy and that when organizations leverage sales enablement tools, they're four times more likely to effectively provide insights into what works to ensure rep consistency. And again, I think we all know it's not just the tech, but how you use it and your strategy that really, really moves the needle. As I mentioned, I could probably take the rest of the day going through the insights, check it out. But basically, the report says that with each year, sales enablement evolves and matures and organizations continue to see business outcomes from this function. And I think everything we've discussed thus far today proves that point. So amazing insights here, worth a look for sure. Awesome. I haven't seen it yet, so I might uh, dig into some of these data points further next month. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, it's hard to take those sort of stats as absolute and right. <laughs> taking them as the reason for things being that way. You really have to observe the conditions. Big time. Devin, so on that note, brings us to the end of the show. Do you have any parting thoughts to share with our audience? I do. And it's about where you were talking about interviewing, selling yourself and telling the story of your career. So I have some advice. Keep educating yourselves. Revisit a book on your bookshelf that you might have read before to see it through a new lens. Read some of the amazing LinkedIn thought leadership that's out there. Listen to enablement podcasts. Listen to experts. Listen to their lessons learned. It might not be net new information, but you may be now receiving that information through a new lens to position it in a different way in your career. So keep learning, keep reassessing, never just lean into this is the way I do it because there is always a better way. And I say this because I've interviewed a number of folks recently when I asked them, how do you stay on top of things? How do you educate yourself? They didn't have an answer. We should always be growing and developing. So those are my parting words. What about you, Felix? My parting words also really tie into that. Do you know the difference between crystallized and liquid intelligence? I don't. So crystallized intelligence is essentially the knowledge that you gain, like, for example, through school, you know, like the information that you oh. retain and that you accumulate over time. And 
Liquid intelligence is essentially connecting the dots and being able to think on your feet, essentially, and building the connection really quickly, right? Makes sense. And crystallized intelligence typically increases over time as you grow older and you learn more. Mm -hmm. And liquid intelligence is the greatest when you're little and when you're young, and it decreases over time. So you basically have those dynamic forces. And my advice or my parting thoughts is, that enablers also to gain a competitive advantage in the job market should always be looking at new sources of information that aren't only sales and sales enablement specific, but also things like the book that I shared today, The Voltage Effect, which are adjacent to sales enablement that help you to think about things in a new way. And that helps you to connect the dots and essentially see things in a new light that you might not have seen before. So I think both is important to stay on top of best practice, but also gaining new perspectives through other areas outside of sales enablement to avoid the echo chamber and to avoid having the same opinions like everybody else. Those are my two cents for today. We're again over time, which is probably a reflection of all the things that we have to talk about. We could probably go for another hour or so. But again, Devin, thank you so much for your time today. And again, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. Thank you so much, everybody. And I will speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Next time on The State of Sales Enablement. Be engaged. Show others that you're here. You're really trying to perfect your craft and basically improve your entire career with everybody else.